let me start out by saying I'm not dying. At least, not today, as Sirio Farrell would say. I've been diagnosed with hairy cell leukemia, a chronic, slow-growing blood cancer with an excellent prognosis. The standard treatment is a chemo drug called cladribine, which 80-90% to 90% of people respond to. Of that 80-90%, to 90%, the majority get complete remissions after one cycle of cladribine. The average remission time is 10 years. So there are a lot of reasons to feel hopeful, but that's the outlook I'm slowly coming around to now after three really difficult months of uncertainty and fear and loss of control. A few months ago, I was getting ready to leave my full-time job to go pursue a Master of Fine Arts degree in public practice. I've always been passionate about art and particularly excited about the potential of community-engaged art to create connections and conversations geared towards transformative social change. For a few years now, I've been working within the architecture industry doing marketing and graphic design. It's been an interesting set of work experiences, but I always knew I wanted to find my way back to art as a central part of my life. So for the past year and a half, I really focused on getting back to school. Last fall, I took a month off of work to develop my portfolio. I got all my applications in, and I was thrilled to find out that I got into the public practice MFA program at Otis. In May and June, I started buying all my books and looking for apartments out near school and generally just making the mental shift away from work and back to school. And then a month before the program was supposed to start, after a lengthy diagnostic journey, I got the news. My story started on May 4th of this year. That was my first time going to the doctor in a few years. I went for a checkup. I was actually convinced to go by my boyfriend who I live with, uh, who had stumbled on an article on iron deficiency and was really worried when he saw that I fit a lot of the symptoms and risk factors. Being a woman, being a vegetarian, being someone who has heavy periods and a lot of fatigue. I also have self-diagnosed restless leg syndrome. I'm just always moving around in bed. So there's a lot of things that he read this article and he was like, you know, you sounds like you have an iron deficiency. I want you to go get it checked out. Um, so I did. And I said, I feel tired a lot of the time. I think I might be iron deficient or maybe there's something like that going on, some vitamin deficiency. Can we do some blood tests to just check? And I didn't have any other symptoms or issues, but she said, sure. So we did a, a whole suite of blood tests. I got the results later that day and not knowing much about reading tests like this, I was able to just see the normal range and see that some of the numbers weren't normal. So at the time, my white blood counts were 2.1 and my platelets were 64, both well below the normal range. So I, you know, I tried to relax, assume nothing was wrong, talk to my doctor about it. She referred me to see a hematologist to further evaluate. And, you know, I, I sort of talked to some people in my life. I talked to my brother, Hike, who is a resident pathologist. And his, his thought was maybe this is a testing error. So why don't you just go see the hematologist and get retested? So on May 16th, I went to my hematology appointment, and, and that, that was scary. I wasn't quite ready for the reaction I had just walking into the hematology oncology department. And I definitely had some anxiety come up while I was in the waiting room. There were a lot of signs posted that talked about chemo and radiation, bone marrow, cancer, leukemia. I was by far the youngest person there. My hemonc, who I'll call Dr. A, 
gave me the immediate impression of competence as soon as she shook my hand and introduced herself. She was very direct, had a clear communication style, and I, I felt immediately at ease. She asked me a bunch of questions, to which basically everything was a no. So I was able to say that other than these numbers and other than the fatigue I had originally talked to my primary care physician about, I felt fine, I felt healthy, I was otherwise young and healthy. So she said, let's, let's do some more blood tests and kind of taking the same approach that my brother had suggested, let's see if this was maybe a testing error. And she said, well, let's see if we can figure out if this is something simple. Uh, and if it's something more complex or if we can't figure it out, you should know that we may need to do a bone marrow biopsy. Yeah, I, I was pretty anxious. Uh, I, I, I didn't think that this would be anything serious, and a bone marrow biopsy, even just as a diagnostic tool, sounded pretty scary to me. I left there really stressed out, took a long walk back to my car, really close to tears, called my boyfriend Hoku to say, I know I'm being silly. I know we have no reason to think that this is anything serious, but I just, I just spent a couple hours in a cancer ward and it was scary. He was very patient and sweet. He calmed me down. He said, it's likely nothing, so there's no reason to worry now. But if there's a problem, we're a team and we'll handle it together. A few days later, on May 20th, when I spoke to Dr. A again, she said, yeah, your B12 is very low, low enough that you'll need once weekly injections for at least four weeks, followed by supplements, and then that might positively impact your blood counts. So let's do those four weeks of injections and then let's do another complete blood count test and see if maybe your, B, your low B12 is inhibiting your white blood cell production. I was hugely relieved to hear her say that. I remember thinking, of course the simplest answer is the right one. I was really worrying for nothing, it must be this. So then June 14th, for the past four weeks, I went in and got my weekly injections convinced that the problem had been figured out and solved. The B12 gave me a lot more energy, so I felt a lot better, less fatigued. Then I went in for another CBC and the results came back. My B12 was well within normal range. My white blood cells were at 2.4 and platelets were at 54. I remember having a sinking feeling in my stomach when I saw the results while I was at work, just immediately going back to the worry of wondering what was causing those low numbers. Did that mean it was definitely not the B12? Did it mean it was something more complex? On June 17th, Dr. A called me back. She said, yeah, your white blood cells went up a little bit, so that's good. But you need to come in and do a flow cytometry test. I said, you know, what? What is that? What's a flow cytometry? She said, it's a special kind of blood test to rule out leukemia. And I remember having a really mixed reaction to that. I was afraid, but I was also relieved. I thought, there's no way I have leukemia, I have no symptoms. This is just going to rule out cancer, which I had been thinking of as the worst case scenario, and then at least I'll have more certainty and more clarity going forward. So a few days later on June 28th, I got a call from Dr. A to talk about my flow cytometry results. She left me a cryptic sounding voicemail while I was at work. She said, I didn't get a definitive diagnosis. The pathologist is recommending a bone marrow biopsy. I called her back, mostly just concerned at that point with the bone marrow biopsy, thinking that sounds really painful, do I really have to do that? After a lot of trying to get through to her and talking to the nurses, I finally got through to talk to Dr. A, got her on the phone, and I, I couldn't help but feel like 
she was being a little bit circumspect, not, not totally sharing what was going on. And in this entire experience, the few months, that phone call was probably the hardest part of it for me. I remember her saying, I don't like to have this conversation over the phone. Your test results came back abnormal and it looks like some kind of low-grade lymphoma, likely hairy cell leukemia. And I just couldn't help it. I broke down and started crying. I was in the hallway outside of work in a really open, creative office. So there's basically nowhere I could go to sort of have some privacy and have this phone call. So it's kind of just like in this not very often used hallway, sort of just breaking down. And so she started to say, this is not a diagnosis. We need to do a bone marrow biopsy to learn more. This is not a diagnosis. I remember that I needed to get into the bathroom to clean up and make myself look a bit more presentable and then go back to work. But you had to have a key to get into the bathroom. So I felt like I was, I, I felt simultaneously really panicked and stuck in my head about the emotion of it, but also just watching the whole thing from a different perspective of like, is this really happening? This seems really bizarre. And I kept having to peek around the corner of the wall to see if any, any of the women from my office would pass by. Instead, I saw one of my male coworkers, who's a really nice guy in our office, who smiled a big smile and waved until he got close enough to see my face. And then despite my serious panic, I remember it dimly registered. It was pretty funny to see him sort of freeze and see his smile turn to horror when he saw the tears in my eyes. He was like, are, are you okay? And I remember sort of like laughing it off. Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm just, yeah, I'm just trying to get into the bathroom. Um, could you maybe get me the key? And to his immense credit, he's like sprinted back to the office and brought me back the key. So I didn't have to walk back into my open office of 50 people looking like a wet cat. And you know, somehow just got through the rest of the day feeling really detached from my body and emotions, like really agonizing about who to talk to about this. I mean, it's not a diagnosis. It's not anything real yet, but I just got the sense from that conversation with her that it was probably something real. So I remember being really freaked out. I was gonna have to wait at least a week until after my bone marrow biopsy to get more information. And I ended up calling my boyfriend, who was great. And then I ended up talking to my, my desk mate at work who had this really funny reaction, showed me a video of a kitten and a dog cuddling, and he was like, this is the kind of thing you need to watch, you need to tear up. I actually stayed at work really late that day helping out with a deadline, and I think I was just really compartmentalizing. So the next day, I decided to talk to my brother, Hike, who I mentioned is a resident pathologist. I didn't want to bring more people I care about into the land of sort of scary uncertainty, but I knew he's, he's a doctor, he'd be able to help me figure this out. So it turned out that a couple days later, he was starting his pathology residency and, and he was starting with a hematopathology rotation. So in the middle of running around and getting used to being a resident, he was calling me almost daily to check in and give me more information when he had it about the disease standard treatments, clinical trials. I didn't record any of our conversations at the time, but I recently sat down and chatted with Hike, getting his thoughts and some of his explanations on the biology behind hairy cell leukemia, and also just what this whole experience was like for him. He gave some helpful definitions of leukemia versus lymphoma, and talked about what distinguishes HCL from other types of leukemia. 
I'll play some of that now so that we can get a bit of background on the disease. And I remember you saying that your oncologist told you that there was something abnormal like hairy cell. Yeah. And that was, I thought that was kind of interesting language. Like, I think actually the language was, it was some low grade, it was potentially a low grade thing like hairy cell. Yeah. But there was no diagnosis yet. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what happened, right? Yeah. I think she said low grade, it looks like a low grade lymphoma like hairy cell leukemia. And I immediately was confused because she used both the word lymphoma and leukemia. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know the difference. Maybe one question to just get get right out of the way is what's the what's, difference? What's leukemia versus what's lymphoma, yeah, right? Yeah. So generally, the the oma ending uh, refers to a mass. So it, you, it's kind of at the end of most cancers, right? So carcinoma, adenoma, sarcoma, all these different cancer types have an oma at the end of it, and that's supposed to refer to the fact that you actually get a tumor or, or mass. Um, the lymph part, lymph is referring to the lymphatic system, to lymphocytes, to lymph nodes, right? Because generally this is, we're talking about white blood cells. So leukemia, the leuk part, L-E-U-K, is from leukocyte, which means white blood cell. And the emia means something in the blood, right? So anytime you hear a word that ends in emia, like anemia, Anemia, mm-hmm. right? It means basically no blood, right? Bilirubinemia. Oh my gosh. Right? So that means there's elevated levels of bilirubin in uh, the blood. Right. The emia part just means in the blood. Or uremia. Um, that, you know, when your kidneys don't do well, the urea levels rise in your blood and you have uremia, mm-hmm. right? So the same thing with leukemia. Uh, it's trying to signal that this is something happening, a process happening in your blood. So the the original distinction was some of these cancers were kind of floating everywhere and didn't present. The patient didn't show up with any kind of mass anywhere. And those were called leukemias. And then other ones, the patient will present with a mass. So usually it was a swollen lymph node. So they'd come and they might have just this big lymph node, this big mass in their in their neck or something or under their jaw. And they would work it up and they would figure out, oh, well, well, this is actually a cancer of white blood cells, but it's presenting as a mass, so it was a lymphoma. But actually, the distinction is kind of a blurry one. It's not a true one because there's various types that, that where basically it's the same disease, but it can either present in the blood without a mass or it can present as a mass. And then when you look in the blood, you may or may not see it. So with hairy cell leukemia, it seems like it's it's also kind of nebulous to some extent because there is there are a lot of people who have like a ma- is it a mass in the spleen? Yeah, well, the yeah one of the most common things, one of the most common findings in hairy cell leukemia is an enlarged spleen. But you can't have cases where you don't have that, and, and you present sort of like the way you did, which was they realized your your normal counts were low. Yeah. Right, and you look in the bone marrow, and it's in the bone marrow. So right. it's spread. It's it's in the blood. It's in the bone marrow. By those criteria, it's a leukemia. So generally, people don't make a big deal about that distinction mm. anymore. The, the the experts in the field know it's kind of a continuum. Gotcha. 
Um, so backing up a little bit into like the definition, hair cell leukemia is a low-grade blood cancer of the B cells. Yeah, right. So the, the name hairy cell leukemia comes from the fact that normally when you look at immune cells under the microscope, whether they're from generally from, from peripheral blood. So when you draw someone's blood and they have these abnormal cells floating around, and you perform a smear, so you smear the cells onto a slide so that you can get this really thin area where there's single cells, mm -hmm. and you look at that area under, the, under a microscope, normally lymphocytes, which are your B cells and your T cells, they're, they're the, like the, um, the adaptive immune cells of your immune system, meaning they're the ones that respond to specific types of pathogens. Um, normally these things, when they're not activated, they look small, they have almost no cytoplasm, like their nucleus almost takes up the entire cell. And they're generally round. They don't have like projections coming out from the, from the cell membrane, right, or the edge of the cell. So the, the characteristic thing about hairy cell leukemia, the thing you see in the textbooks, is this cell that looks kind of like a lymphocyte. It doesn't look like some, another kind of immune cell but it's got more cytoplasm, it's a little bit bigger than a normal lymphocyte, and it's got all of these projections. So it's got all these kind of hairy looking things, like a ruffled border. Um, the, the most recent classifications of leukemias and lymphomas, the way they try to kind of parse them out and categorize them and subcategorize them is based on um, the molecular changes, but also they try to focus on what is the normal cell counterpart of this cell. For example, when you're talking about acute leukemia, generally the normal counterpart is what's called the blast. So for acute myeloid leukemia, it's the myeloblast, and that means the very immature myeloid cell. Mm -hmm. That's the cell that divides out of control to give you acute leukemia. For um, hairy cell leukemia, I think... It's, it's not absolutely clear, but they've done these experiments where they've compared all of the, the, the genes that these cancers are expressing, and they've compared them to the profiles of all the normal cell types that they could sort of separate out. And it looks like it's most similar to a memory B cell. The B cells, that's the lineage of cells that end up differentiating into antibody-producing cells. And so what happens in an immune reaction is you get infected with something, that infectious thing is presented to B cells and the ones that will react to it, the ones that happen to make an antibody that will bind to it and therefore will be able to fight off the infection, will be able to make antibodies that react with that pathogen, those B cells are signaled to proliferate. So they should divide and, and you should make many of them and some of those will turn into mature antibody producing cells and they'll produce all these antibodies to fight off the infection. But then afterwards, you don't need all those around. So many of them should die, um, but you'll have some memory cells that stick around so that if you ever get infected again with the same thing, you'll get a very quick response. Those memory cells will be able to jump right in and you won't have this lag phase where you actually get sick before you're able to fight off the infection. Mm -hmm. And that's why vaccinations work too, because you're able to make this memory component of your immune system. So it looks like the memory B cell, uh, the long-lived cell, which is generally, you think of it as a kind of a dormant cell, uh, that's probably the normal cell counterpart for hairy cell leukemia.
So July 1st, Hoku and I both took the day off from work. He drove me to the hospital. So when I went in for the bone marrow biopsy, Dr. A came in, trailed by a teenage girl. She said, she's interested in medicine, so she's shadowing the doctors today. Is it okay if she stays and watches the bone marrow biopsy? And I said that was fine. Sort of hysterically thought, well, okay, maybe this is good and maybe the bone marrow biopsy will be so horrifying it will convince her to switch life paths and, you know, this is kind of a weird service I'm doing this girl. Had a short consult with my doctor where she explained all the test results, talked more about the flow cytometry. I asked what questions I could remember through my nerves and found out that they were thinking hairy cell leukemia because they saw the classic hairy cells in my peripheral blood smear. I'll spare you the play-by-play on the bone marrow biopsy. Suffice it to say that the teenage girl was the only thing in my line of vision and she looked like she was straight up about to faint. So the weekend of July 2nd to July 4th, my mom was thankfully in Las Vegas with some friends for the 4th of July weekend. I had decided not to tell her about this until I knew more, which meant waiting a few days for the bone marrow biopsy results. Dr. A had told me that I would probably get a definitive diagnosis at that point. Some small part of me was probably still hoping that this was all a mistake, that I didn't have a cancer at all, but by that point, most of me knew that I did. From what everyone had told me and from what I'd read, if you have to have leukemia, HCL is the kind to get. I was still afraid at that point that it would be something with a worse prognosis, and I just didn't want to put my mother and more of my loved ones through the uncertainty of that. So I remember spending a weekend with my brothers chilling on the hammock that Hike had brought back from his recent trip to Costa Rica. I almost felt fine, except I'm not sure if I was actually okay or just kind of numb. Most of the time I like to be alone, particularly to process big emotions. But this whole situation, the uncertainty of it, just made me want to be around the people I love. And I'm really grateful to my friends and family, those who knew what I was going through and those who didn't, for just being the best company during that pretty awful time. The next few days was just a lot of waiting. In the course of that week, Dr. A called me and left a voicemail. She said that actually the bone marrow biopsy hadn't been definitive and I would need to come in to get a BRAF mutation blood test. BRAF as in B-R-A-F. It's a really common mutation that's often associated with hairy cell leukemia and also with melanoma. July 8th. Got really tired of waiting. I was now facing another weekend with no clear answers and I just wanted to have some solid information before I came to my mom and my other two brothers with it. In the very beginning, it was like the hardest time I I felt because we didn't really know. We didn't know much. And I didn't know the details of hairy cell leukemia, so I just, you know, I just intellectualized it in a way, and I just went and started reading, and once in a while I think about things like, well, what if... Anna's the 10% that doesn't respond. And then I say, yeah. shut up, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> There's no yeah. point in thinking those things, yeah. you know, because because there isn't a point, you know. But um, I guess there was like a couple weeks where you were one of the only, I think you were one of like a couple people who knew that this was going on because you were, you know, we didn't have a definitive diagnosis yet and you were talking to people, the doctors that you were working with and the hematopathologists. Um, you had just started your your residency, as you mentioned. Was that like ever weird, or were people pretty willing to talk to you about it and help you look at my case? Well, I, I think it's from a, like just a personality 
standpoint. Like I have, sometimes I have a harder time than I should asking for help. Mm -hmm. Um, But given the situation, like that was very minor, you know, like I didn't, I didn't have a problem there. And actually both of the hematopathologists at UCI are very nice and they're very, they care a lot about the residents. So they both sat down with me multiple times. I asked you for, to get the slides. Yeah. And I showed it to them sort of informally, right? And I asked for their opinions, and they both spent, you know, a lot of time with me mm-hmm. going through it, giving me their thoughts. And they both agreed that, given also the other results, right? So it wasn't just the slides. We had other results, the flow cytometry mm-hmm. that showed an immunophenotype consistent with hairy cell. You also, by that point, had some molecular testing, which showed a mutation that was pretty specific for hairy cell leukemia. Mm-hmm. So given all of that, they agreed with the diagnosis that had been made. Yeah. And then we also have another sort of affiliated faculty member who is very esteemed, and he just he comes once every week or two uh, to UCI and teaches the residents. And so I was able to show it to him as well. And he also agreed, and in fact, he thought that there was essentially nothing else on, that you could even put on the differential mm-hmm. diagnosis given all of the all of the results. Yeah. With some perspective, I feel really lucky to have had a bunch of different experts look at it because you had said at the time that it's, it's way more important to have the right diagnosis mm-hmm. than, especially, you know, knowing that it's a slow-growing cancer mm-hmm. than to uh, jump into treatment decisions. So My logic is there's always going to be some diagnostic error no matter what there's going to be some error right and so if you look at a trial and the trial says um, everyone that out of everyone that participated in this trial that had hairy cell leukemia that received this drug 80 percent responded and 20 percent didn't some of those 20 percent could be people that were misdiagnosed mm. right you can never have more than 100 percent correct diagnosis yeah. but you can and usually do have less than 100%. So my logic was the most important thing is to be sure we have the right diagnosis. Also given that you're such an atypical patient for yourself, that's the thing across the board that gave every person that I showed the case to, gave every person pause. They were Mm -hmm. like, what? She's 24? She's a girl? That doesn't... uh, Yeah. Let me look at this more and more carefully. Because their first impression is this is hairy cell. And then they're like, well... Who's the patient exactly? And you're like, well, she's, or how old is she? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, they, they, they all assume this is an older sister. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this is my <laughs> younger sister. She's 24. And they'd be like, what? I've never seen this. Yeah. You know? And given they haven't seen that many cases, right? Because it's so rare. And none of them are, are hairy cell specialists. But yeah, I think given all of those things, and given the fact that the prognosis was so good, the major hurdle was making sure there wasn't a diagnostic error. July 15th. I got a call from Dr. A while I was on the bus. The phone call cut out a couple of times, but I got the gist. She said, definitely hairy cell leukemia. I was surprised to hear that she, fe- she felt I needed to treat in the next six months. I thought I had more time than that. It sort of put a wrench in my grad school plans. And I felt a weird combination of scared, sad, and really relieved. 
scared that I have to go through chemo and really, truly deal with this disease. Sad that my plans may be falling apart, but really relieved that it's not worse and just that I finally know. Now I can treat it like a real problem, tell more people in my life, ask for support, do more research, and slowly make my treatment decisions. Now that it's one scary thing, and not a multitude of scary possibilities, I felt like I could deal with the reality of it. Thanks for joining me for part one of episode one of Anna and the Harry Cells a documentary podcast series about getting a scary diagnosis and learning how to move forward. Look out for part two in the next few days where I'll discuss the factors that led to my decision to enter a clinical trial at the NIH. Thanks to my brother Hike for agreeing to be on the podcast and providing medical expertise, and thanks to my boyfriend Hoku for his feedback and editing help. If I feel up to it, I plan to update once weekly, so follow along to keep up on how I'm doing. If there's something you'd like to share, send me a message at annaandtheharrycells.com. I'd love to hear from you.